as the Education Programs Coordinator and Researcher for Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, my guest today has analyzed the pros and cons of digital IDs at length. Here to discuss the why, the how, and the concerns that could arise, you'll love my eye-opening conversation with Luke Nielsen. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Luke, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. So maybe to start off at 10,000 feet, Luke, um, talk to us a little bit about digital IDs in Canada and where this actually got momentum in the last uh, number of years. I would say governments, workplaces, um, we always have a motivation to optimize our interactions with each other. We want those interactions to be as secure as possible, as efficient as possible, and as profitable as possible. Um, so digital ID is a response to the social problem of facilitating productive, efficient, secure interactions between individuals, individuals and corporations, corporations and corporations, and individuals and government. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that generates attention, right? We want efficiency, security, and profitability. Sure. We invent a digital ID to solve that problem. But then, of course, digital ID can generate privacy concerns. And I think that's the high level picture. We're talking about two competing values, security, efficiency, convenience, and privacy. And I'm not convinced today that Canadian governments or partnering agencies have effectively resolved that tension. Well, you published a report um, about the Canadian digital IDs. And I would urge everyone to go check it out. We'll make sure we have the information available to you. But what prompted you to write this report? I think there's a lot of speculation about digital ID and the harms that could arise from digital ID. I don't think there's a lot of clarity in Canada about what digital ID means and yep. how it impact rights and freedoms in Canada. Um, there's a lot of talk about information technologies. I mean, we, we're living in a really exciting age of AI, biometrics, facial recognition, um, social credit systems. Uh, we have all of these elements in Canada today and as much as I love technology, I think we need to have a really balanced discussion about how technologies are going to impact our other values, things that are yeah. really Well, there's a saying that says, for every mile of road, you've got two miles of ditch. You can go in the extremes on, on either end. And we obviously, we live in a polarized society um, in a lot of different topics and areas. And especially when it comes down, comes down to freedoms and and privacy and these things that we do value. I guess I got a, a number of questions, but one of the first one that comes up to mind in your opinion, do we have what it takes to maintain our privacy while trying to uh, effectively become efficient with our interactions? Can we maintain our privacy? I would say that most of the digital ID initiatives in Canada today are being pushed forward by partnering agencies. So non-government agencies, such as the World Economic Forum, Yep. the Digital Identification and Authentication Council of Canada, yep. Interact, BMO, TD, uh, many ministers in government. Now, they're going to design programs that are legal, right? They're not going to design any program that violates, for instance, the Privacy Act in Canada. Sure. Now, the problem is, if those acts are outdated, if they can't protect privacy or protect our other concerns um, in, in a really rapidly evolving tech space, uh, no, we're not going to be protected. So this is a policy battle. It's also a legislation battle. 
And I think that Canadians need to get a lot more involved in ensuring that their digital ID program doesn't violate their rights and freedoms. Because okay. if they don't do that, legislators aren't going to do that. Third-party offshore organizations aren't going to do that. So you mentioned most digital ID programs just a, a couple sentences ago. We've got um, we've been talking about digital ID as a general topic. Can you maybe list some of the specific digital IDs that are happening right now in Canada, whether it's through government or whether it's through banking or whatever? What are some specific ones that people maybe would be familiar with? Globally, I think there are about 4.8 billion users of digital ID right now. This okay. is not something that will happen. It's something that has been happening for a long time. Okay. I live in Alberta. I have a My Alberta Digital ID, okay. which allows me to interact with my government online. I don't have yes. to go into a vehicle registry office to pay a fine. I don't have to. I don't have to go to my bank anymore to cash a check or to verify my identity. Um, for a, a banking transaction to occur. So there are digital ID programs all across Canada. Um, Alberta and BC have led the way, I believe, in adopting digital ID programs. I know that Ontario and Quebec are eager to implement their own programs. I think the territories have some programs of some kind as well. What's really interesting though, David, is that we're now talking about a national or a federal digital ID. And we're talking about more than what we call in the report, a mere counterpart to traditional identification documents. So right now, governments all over the world are telling their citizens, get a digital ID. It's a digital version of your passport, your driver's license, your healthcare card. Yeah, That doesn't sound problematic at all. In fact, yesterday I missed a flight because I lost my wallet and couldn't present my physical ID to the travel authority. And so, I was hooped. In that moment, a digital counterpart to my plastic card would have been a very welcome uh, piece of technology on my phone. But governments aren't just selling counterparts to traditional identification documents. I believe that they're selling their citizens programs that have tracking and profiling capabilities. Hmm. So they're actually designing programs that collect about their users much more information than is needed for you to prove your age at a service vendor or for you to hop on a plane or for you to prove your identity when making a withdrawal from your bank account. Um, they're designing programs that allow them to do what Apple does, to do what Disney Plus does, to do what Netflix does. They capture data about your behavior, your interests, your political beliefs so that they can know you. Yeah. Why wouldn't we want to know each other? I mean, it's, it's very powerful to have that kind of information about Canadians. So that's that's what's going on today. We have modest provincial initiatives. Canadians still have time to participate effectively in a public policy and law debate about national programs and national programs that partner with third parties. You mentioned earlier the WEF, the World Economic Forum, being a big proponent of pushing digital IDs and even having multiple countries that are involved with this. And they've pushed initiatives like ID 2020 Alliance and that kind of thing to promote it. Um, can you explain maybe the World Economic Forum's influence that they have with digital IDs and where they're coming from? So in 2018 or 2019, Canada partnered with the World Economic Forum to test a pilot project called the Known Traveler Digital ID Program. And um, 
I believe that that partnership has been put on hold, but neither the World Economic Forum nor the Canadian government have said that the partnership is completely off the books. So we may see a known traveler digital ID in the future in Canada. And at first glance, it seems like a great program. Sure. Right. When I walk up to a travel authority and say, I'm going to be on this flight, there has to be a sufficient level of trust between me and the travel authority for me to get on that plane. Right. They have to know that I am who I say I am. Um, they have to know that I have the relevant documents for a domestic or international flight. They should probably know that I'm not associated with terrorist organizations, that I don't have a history of trying to hijack planes or th these sorts of things, right? So we have to establish a sufficient degree of trust between ourselves yeah. for actions to occur. This this is true everywhere, governments, businesses, your neighbors, et cetera. What's problematic about the known traveler digital ID is that it really requires individuals to surrender otherwise private information in order to get on a flight. So it looks kind of like this. Suppose you're a traveler and you want to get on a flight. Well, you're going to get a better flight or a faster flight or more leg room if the government or the travel agency can be convinced that you're more trustworthy than everyone else in the airport. Well, how do you prove you're more trustworthy? You can do that in two ways. You can have third party organizations make attestations or credible claims about your character and your trustworthiness. These kinds of attestations could come from a post office, according to the World Economic Forum. I'm not sure what a post office could say about my eligibility for flying, but it's in there. Uh, your post-secondary institution could upload proof of your academic credentials to the airline. Your uh, health authority could upload proof of your vaccination status if you were vaccinated. And the more attestations you have about your character, the more likely you are to get on a flight or get better services while on the flight. Now, this is kind of problematic for a few reasons. What if you're not vaccinated? What if you don't have a PhD from some credible research institution? Sorry, Luke, what? are you saying that all of that is possible right now under the known ID traveler program, or that's a gray area? Are you, are you saying that's currently possible? That's currently possible. That is in the World Economic Forum policy document, okay. traveler digital ID. That's an important it's, specific to know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's really interesting, right? Um, yeah. So again, this program hasn't been implemented in Canada, but neither has the Canadian government officially uh, distanced themselves from the World Economic yeah. Forum. It's still possible that we could see this policy today, and any Canadian right now could find exactly what I'm talking about um, by either reading the report that we composed or by following the footnotes and going to the original sources. Uh, this stuff is right on the World Economic Forum website. So that really so, sounds like, sorry to interrupt again, that sounds eerily close to a social credit system or the starts of it or moving direction. That would obviously be some of the negative side that people are very concerned about. So are, are you saying that this does open the door if you fast forward enough time that it could lead down that path with the right, the right variables in place? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a lot of concern about social credit systems today, and social credit systems are very often associated with digital ID programs. Yes. They are closely related, but there is a distinction. Okay. There are social credit systems in Canada today. For instance, if you take out 10 credit cards, max them all out, and fail to pay on time, uh, your, your credit rating will go down. That is a social credit score. That is a cr social credit system that allows banks, that allows 
landowners and homeowners, uh, renters, businesses, even your employers to know whether or not you can handle money and are trustworthy. So we, you know, we can debate whether that's an ethical or um, pragmatic social credit system in Canada, but we already have them today. And in many ways, they're a good, right? In, in some cases, in limited cases, they're a good. Um, but you're right, this known traveler digital ID is essentially a social credit score. Your eligibility for domestic or international travel will be affected by things that are essentially irrelevant to your eligibility to travel today. You just have to afford a plane ticket, provide your boarding pass, provide your ID, that's it. We don't care if you're more educated, we don't care if you're more vaccinated, get on a flight. So this is a way of ranking Canadians uh, and providing different types of goods and services depending on uh, how, I guess, virtuous you are or how trustworthy you are. Um, but there's another way that you can prove that you're more trustworthy to the airline. That's by surrendering information about yourself on your own volition. So uh, right in the World Economic Forum's documents, you can see that to access better goods and services at airports, you can surrender information about the purpose of your travel. Why are you going to Spain? What are you doing there? Are you going for business? Are you going for pleasure? You can surrender information about your travel history and your extended travel history. Where were you three years ago? Where were you five years ago? You can, and this I think is very problematic, you can even surrender information about your travel partners and what they're doing, what they're up to and what they've been doing. And so the World Economic Forum is creating an incentive for Canadians, not only to surrender otherwise private information about themselves, but to surrender otherwise private information about people who can't consent to that information being surrendered. Hmm. To me, that, that's really problematic. And the, the KTDI isn't even the most problematic digital ID in Canada today. Um, but honestly, Dave, it, it surprises me that the World Economic Forum would come up with a program like that. It feels like it was written by a freshman ethicist who, <laughs> who thought, yeah, let's go for the tech. Let's go for the convenience. Let's go for the security. Yeah. Let's, let's not think at all about privacy, about consent, about um, things like access. Things yeah, like yeah. equality. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you you mentioned about the social credit system that we already have in Canada. Obviously, when it comes to how we pay our bills, our money, our, our current credit system that's allowing. And I, I would say it, it was interesting. I haven't thought of that as a social credit system, which I guess it falls under the umbrella. But that is upon an agreed, a generally agreed transaction type revolving our dollar. So everyone seems to be okay with it. And then you started diving into required from the government versus voluntary. And that's an interesting distinction because I think as, if you start getting requirements from the government of needing this, needing this, or you can't access certain things, you don't have that general agreement amongst our population for different aspects of a social credit system, which is where it gets real sticky because uh, I'm okay. If there's certain things I really want, I'll be willing to look at what am I willing to volunteer? to give them because I really want that. And then we all become the judge for ourselves. And you have that little bit of autonomy at least, which is maintained. So anyways, mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about, you mentioned earlier when we were chatting before the show started about the Pan-Canadian Trust Network and, and different policy. Can you first off, let us know what that is and, and how is that a part of the digital ID conversation? So the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework is a modeling of a potential 
digital ID program for Canada that would not just facilitate interactions between individual and their government, but everyone, individuals and individuals, individuals and corporations, corporations and corporations, corporations and government. This is a model that would facilitate all interactions between everyone in society. It has, it, it's been built by what's known as the Digital Identification and Authentication Council of Canada. This is a non-government entity, but it its members contain a lot of um, very influential politicians, very influential elected representatives. Um, as I mentioned before, the heads of organizations like Interact and BMO and Desjardins and uh, TD. So there are a lot of heavy hitters in this space, and they're trying to show Canada what a digital ID framework could look like in the country. Now, in order to interact, let's say you and I wanted to conduct a business interaction, um, the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework would capture two kinds of evidence about me to show yep. whether or not I'm eligible for that transaction. And they call that foundational evidence or data and contextual evidence or data. Now, I would venture to say that governments capturing foundational evidence is not problematic. Um, sure. Foundational evidence is things like uh, the sorts of evidence collected by, about you in a census or um, from some sort of vital statistics agency. Think of it as all kinds of data that governments capture right now anyway through their physical ID programs. Sure. Um, but they also capture contextual evidence. And what I think is very concerning is that the definition of contextual evidence is very fuzzy. It, it's all the other sorts of information about you that um, they could collect, such as your behaviors, um, who you are across time. So not just at any moment in time, but also who you are at every moment of your life. Yeah. And with a cell phone, it's very easy to capture that kind of data. Where sure. were you in your car yesterday? Um, looks like you made a purchase at a convenience store and then at Walmart and then at Costco and then at the local bakery. Um, they're gonna start, the model would allow them to start capturing that kind of data about you. Yeah. And some of it's rather concerning. Like there's language in the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework that would allow them to capture your touchscreen pressure on your smartphone. So you apparently have uh, like a fingerprint, a, a unique way of interacting with your smartphone. And they're going to start collecting that kind of information about you. They could collect information about your walking gait as measured by your smartphone's accelerometer. Again, you have a unique way of walking and yeah. governments want to know that because they want to be able to see, you know, maybe your face is covered in an airport. They'll still be able to identify you based on your unique walking gait. Yeah. So wow. it's very interesting. I mean, yeah. The technology, so just the technology is is there. You're saying for a majority, like we already live in a digital age. Um, most of my interactions with government or banking or general day to day life involves digital. Like my phone, if I leave my phone somewhere, oftentimes I can't pay for things, <laughs> right? So the technology seems to be there already with the advancement of AI, especially we've been seeing that in the last, gosh, last year or two. So my question is, in short. Is the technology already there or do we still have to make some advancements to get there? Oh, the technology is there. So yeah. for instance, if let's say you have an Apple wallet, um, well, every time you make a purchase, Apple knows about that purchase. Yeah. So Apple probably knows how one or two billion people on the planet spend their money every day. That's yeah. incredibly powerful information. Yeah. Uh, 
you can, well, I, I won't say what you can do with that kind of information, but imagine sure. knowing 2 billion human beings spent their money every day. Um, yeah. Right now you can throw on an Apple watch and your heart rate is being monitored every day. There are apps that measure your sleep performance. Yep. When you spoke in the night, when you woke up, when you started night walking. Um, I mean, this information is being used. It's incredibly useful to know how a billion people sleep, that you can sell products to them. You can uh, push messaging on them. So I would say, David, yes, the technology is there. It has been here for a while. Governments want in. Governments yep. want to play the game. Absolutely. Well, and really, anytime you can get use that information, if you have actually, I should say, if you have apps that you're using that you get to use for free is you wonder what the product is. Well, I would say you're actually the product. Your information is being sold and, and panned off when you hit. I agree to terms and conditions and you don't read them, which very few do. Is it probably is in there that your information is able to be spread and sold and all of that. I've got a question. Actually, I want I want you to maybe give me a little bit of a, a short argument for either side, if you don't mind. So pretend I'm a person that is absolutely scared of this advancement. Uh, I want my autonomy. I don't want the government knowing anything about me except for maybe a couple things that I, I voluntarily give them or I have to, to do taxes or whatever. What would your argument be to help me come see the other side of the efficiency and how we can be more effective in a digital world and the digital ID? Convince me. Okay, so suppose um, all of your medical, your private personal medical information is not transmitted via some digital framework. It's sent via a fax machine. Every year, millions, maybe not millions, but I'd say millions of people across the world have their personal medical information surrendered or given to people who should not see it just by virtue of an accident. Uh, you mm -hmm. punched in the wrong number on a fax machine. There are problems like this in Germany. There are problems like this in Japan. Governments are hamstrung by the fact that their economies aren't digital enough, but they're competing with jurisdictions that are digital. Yeah. Um, they're trying to deliver fast and efficient services, but the technology like a fax machine or uh, a, a phone on a wall is not really an efficient or secure or uh, scalable way of transmitting data across countries and between countries. Um, every year, millions of Canadians suffer from fraud right? Their physical IDs or passports are stolen. Um, and it's, you know, if you lose your ID, as I did yesterday, uh, it's very hard to prove your identity. Yesterday, I missed my flight. And I was told by the agent at WestJet, go to the RCMP and have your identity verified. Seems simple enough. I got there and they said, there's nothing we can do for you. You need to get your passport courier to you. So even yesterday, I was convinced of the value of some kind of digital ID. Sure. Um, if you've if you've had your identity stolen, um, or if you've had to find yourself driving a long way uh, to to have to prove your identity, you might be into a digital ID. Uh, interestingly, the COVID nineteen pandemic and the unprecedented lockdowns were an impetus for digital ID programs. People yeah. were locked in their homes. It was illegal to venture beyond the confines of your home for many months in many parts of Canada. And um, governments are, are using this as an argument for digital ID. Sure. Imagine not having to leave your home to access your bank or your healthcare records or renew your license. So yeah. I think uh, those are good arguments. And I believe now the, now the other side, Luke, I'm someone who says I've got nothing to hide. 
The government can know everything about me. I don't care. I'm just a citizen that wants to live a good life and interact with more people. Convince me about if I've got no idea about the privacy concerns or where this could uh, push in on what is my autonomy and my rights. What concerns should I be aware of that I'm unaware of? Privacy matters. Now, a lot of people will say privacy only matters if you have something to hide. Right? Only criminals care about privacy. Only you know people with really problematic behaviors can value from privacy. Um, part of the report that we released, and we'll be releasing a part two shortly, part of this report is to convince Canadians that privacy is valuable for everyone, not just for those who have something to hide. And we're going to show that privacy matters for a few reasons. One, uh, we think that privacy is necessary for the enjoyment of security. So when governments have every kind of information about you, when they know everything about you, so much information that they can actually start modeling your probable behaviors, yeah. um, it, it gives the government an immense amount of authority and power to harm your security, right? Now, this wouldn't be a problem if governments were always just, if yeah. laws were always just, if police forces were always just, if we had a perfectly ethical, ideal government, if every agent of the state, if every administrator, if every judge was always perfectly ethical and perfectly right, we might say, look, having all that information about Canadians couldn't be a problem because governments, a good government would never use that information against the citizens. But as we know, David, in Canada and especially in many jurisdictions across the world, governments aren't ethical. Administrators don't always make the right decisions. And so when you give them that amount of information, it allows them to perhaps enact laws or policies that unjustifiably prevent you from getting on a plane yeah. or prevent you from visiting a stick parent or prevent you from accessing a goods or service in your local community. Um, you know, this is a contentious issue and not everyone will agree with me, but many Canadians weren't allowed to access domestic or international travel because they were unvaccinated. Yeah. Uh, in jurisdictions across the world, uh, if you, let's say you're a human rights lawyer going to interview somebody who's contesting the government, you might have your ability to get on a plane or a train or a taxi taken away from you. So again, um, security matters. And we need privacy to enjoy security because unfortunately we live in a world where governments aren't always ethical. And there are two other concerns as well. One is autonomy, right? There is a known chilling effect on people's autonomy and expressiveness when they're being monitored constantly. For sure. Right. Yep. If my mother came and spent a week with me, I would definitely modify my behaviors because I know that I'm being monitored, right? When governments can collect everything about who you are and what you do, that's going to have a chilling effect, not just on criminal behavior, which would be a fine thing, but also on artistic expression and political expression and protests and, and workplace conversations. And then finally, there, there's a lot of literature in academic departments across the world that say human beings are special. We are not specimens. We are not objects for study. It is unethical and immodest for governments and corporations to treat individuals like specimens, individuals who entire identities and personhoods can be captured by lists of facts about them. Yeah, yeah. Governments should not be in that business because we're not objects in a laboratory. So that would be my response to the person who says, I have nothing to hide, privacy can't matter.
Well, incredibly nuanced conversation and thoughts to have about this. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. We, uh, we want to continue bringing awareness as to what's going on as this is progressing daily in our lives. You look all around you, we're, we're in that age already and uh, it's going to keep on growing. So I appreciate you bringing all the wisdom. Let us know or let our audience know how they can follow you. If they want to keep up with you and the work you're doing, how can they connect with you? Great. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show, David. If if your followers want to stay connected with our work, I'd invite them to visit the Justice Center. Yep. We have uh, the Justice Center website. On that website, we have a new research and public policy initiative called Technology and the Charter. We're going to be doing work over the next, well, many years, evaluating the impacts of information technologies like digital ID on yep. rights and freedoms in Canada. So by all means, go to the Justice Center website and stay tuned with our research and public policy analysis. That's awesome. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate your time. And everyone, thank you for joining in here on Return to Reason. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much. You are an essential part of this series. Support truth, knowledge, and wisdom by sharing this show with a friend. Visit returntoreason.tv. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter by clicking Become an Insider. Get the latest articles, episodes, and exclusive content. It's Return to Reason.